welcome to another episode of Chart of Fortune, the astrology podcast where I look at the birth charts of the moments and things that made pop culture. I'm your host, Elise Blaylock, and can we all agree that Super Bowl really ought to be named Superb Owl Day and feature only animal content, including, but not limited to, the Puppy Bowl? If you know the reference to Superb Owl, you are a magical human, and we're destined to be best friends. Don't fight it. You know, some part of you thinks this is only a slightly terrible idea. And since we're all friends here, I actually really need to talk to you briefly about two other pop culture podcasts. This is not an ad. This is a serious conversation. And I appreciate that I get to use my platform to talk about it at all. You might have heard of the podcast network Wondery, or you might have even listened to one of its shows. Um, A lot of large networks use them for their podcasts, so you probably have listened to something they've created. I want to talk to you about one of their shows, which is called Even the Rich. It details stories of famous and wealthy people. Season 8 was a four-part series on Britney Spears, and those episodes used an extensive amount of information and analysis that was originally broadcast on an indie podcast named Dunzo by Troy McGeady. The issue is that Wondery only credited Troy once during the musical fade-out, which is easily missed or gone unheard if you don't listen to the end of podcast episodes. Other resources that were used for that podcast were cited in the middle of the podcast when a quote or information was being shared. For some context, Wondery Network is owned by Amazon, and it is the largest independent public podcast publisher in the world. Dunzo is an independent podcast on a small independent podcast network. In the interest of being transparent, I have not listened to an episode of Even the Rich, and I am a huge fan of Dunzo and Troy but I don't know anyone who's involved in this personally. I've never met anyone. I want to know, like, want you to know that I did reach out to Troy, and I did this on Instagram, uh, and it's only after obtaining his explicit permission that I am talking about this on this episode and that I will be sharing links to his podcast. I understand that if you're listening to this, it could sound really petty of me to bring this up. It's not my podcast. Or it could seem like I'm trying to be a mean girl or start shit. And I want you to know that I really hear you and thought a lot about whether I should say something or not. I'm doing my best right now to give a Katie from Matt's season of The Bachelor kind of vibe. I see an issue and I want to bring attention to it and I appreciate that there is someone out there who is you who might listen to this and also find like this is an issue you care about as well. It is not easy out there for an indie pod. You know, ask me how I know. And everyone deserves proper recognition for the hard work they put in and for the content they create. So, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Brittany Jean Spears, please consider checking out Dunzo on any social media, or listening to an episode, or just telling a friend that you like this podcast, and maybe they might like that podcast. The show focuses on real and fake relationships from 2000s pop culture. Troy is a pop culture phenom and a tremendous podcaster. He is a true gem. As I mentioned, there will be links to Dunzo's Instagram and podcast in my show notes. I'm grateful to have you as a listener, and if you're new, please know that I don't typically have to share this kind of upsetting or sad news during an episode. So now, back to our regularly scheduled program. In some less intense pop culture news, perhaps, I finally tried Limoncello LaCroix, and I really need someone to tell me if it's good or if it's just blurg, and I'm confusing novelty with taste. It's like a lemon drop, but it's not sweet. Is this delicious? Is it bad? Am I just turning into that meme with a guy holding a butterfly? I don't typically go for citrus-flavored LaCroix. In fact, my absolute favorite flavor is coconut, and I expect that most people will stop listening to the podcast right now. Okay, 
if you're still here. I come to you from my couch watching impeachment proceedings again. And if I could have a voicemail greeting that reflected my current emotional temperature, it would be something like, Hi, you've reached the mailbox of Chart of Fortune. I can't come to the phone right now because I'm deep in a multi-week e-reality show binge. If you leave your message after the beep, I'll know you're over the age of 35 or a scam caller. I'll be sure to get back to you when I decide to become a productive member of our ever-crumbling and fractured society. Bye! But I'm only slightly kidding because I'm back again with another e-network reality show that's been canceled and then relegated to the annals of minor pop culture celebrity. I know, two e-reality shows in two weeks? Like, are we supposed to be impressed at my lack of personal plans? My ability to binge watch television I've already seen? No. No, we're not. I caught up on The Bachelor, and I'm not going to watch Bridgerton. I know. I'm a white woman in my early 30s. The show is practically produced for my demographic. But I like very few period pieces. Again, I anticipate most people stop listening to the podcast right now. And I do not need some wannabe Jane Austen plotline that seems to really be a commentary on female fertility and antiquated sexual politics. But that's me. Also, there's almost nothing more fatal for my body and face shape than an umpire waist, satin gown, and an updo. Trust me on this. Like, more than you would trust me about Coconut LaCroix. I feel like I can be real with you as I've already said. So I'm releasing this episode because one of the stars, Morgan Stewart, now Morgan Stewart McGraw, is likely giving birth to her first child this month, and I felt like this was the time to revisit the Rich Kids of Beverly Hills chapter in clout-chasing pop culture. It's what Morgan would want. It's what my Instagram would want. And when I conveniently choose to use astrology for my own personal wicked needs, I'd say something like Aquarius season is about the collective. We belong to each other. And I want to use all those hashtags that will be trending to my advantage because we all will be using them together. And also, what says time has passed more than the cast having three marriages and a baby years after the show wrapped? And a crop top wedding dress. But more on the dress later. We're also right in the middle of Mercury retrograde in Aquarius. And as you likely know, retrograde periods mean we need to revisit old themes. This could mean I need to address my personal issues that have gone long neglected. See the aforementioned e-network obsession. But I think it's also conveniently about me revisiting old television shows that I love. I have five natal planets in retrograde. So that are retrograde. So it might not surprise you that I've dedicated my free time to a podcast that's all about revisiting pop culture moments. I could move forward, but honestly, sometimes I just want to be that girl in the corny Instagram photos that's looking over her shoulder at the camera. You know, hand extended. In this example, it's the neon green hand from my logo. And I'm asking you to take my hand as I transport us back into 2014. Rich Kids of Beverly Hills started where so many late 2010 dreams began, on a Tumblr account. When people would post receipts of ridiculously expensive nightclub bottle service bills or pictures of private jets, expensive homes and cars and clothes, like so many things covered on this podcast, this ultra-rich narrative hasn't aged well, especially because those cast members were all born into wealthy families. So it's not like they're some self-made millionaires or even billionaires like Kylie Jenner. Okay, we know that's a joke, right? Okay. And out of this Tumblr account, the casting directors at E! News found Dorothy Wang on Instagram, and they offered her a meeting as long as she brought her friends. Morgan Stewart, Roxy Salati, and Johnny Drubel, Brendan Fitzpatrick, and E.J. Johnson. 
and it was likely at a table festooned with Louis Vuitton and iced coffees that a deal was struck. Dorothy and her friends would agree to film their lives for an untitled show with the working title, The Dorothy and Morgan Project Untitled. Their Valentino rock studs likely propped up in the long, bloodwood conference table, oversized sunnies and blazers still on. They agreed to make a tape and sign on the dotted line. They had no idea. They'd soon be labeled as the rich kids of Beverly Hills. As a quick aside, I've never worked in Hollywood or lived in Southern California, so my mental image of casting directors is very chessy from the parent trap. She's rocking a button-up shirt because, you know, it's professionalism and also ease. Maybe her hair is up. She's got a pair of sensible tortoiseshell glasses for moments where she needs to convey both seriousness and some warmth. She's frank and to the point, but she can exude care as needed. So whether it was Jesse or some random white guy leading the show's production, you should know that 2014 was a tough year for E! and astrology, the latter of which I'm going to address momentarily. As you know from my last episode, in 2014, Married to Jonas and What Would Ryan Lochte Do had both wrapped. Now, Juliana and Bill would also begin to air this year, as well as some other shows I didn't watch or remember, like Escape Club, which was a travel competition reality show, and Untold with Maria Menounos. But, hands down, the most random show to air on 2014, on E! was The Fabulist. Now, if you Google simply The Fabulist, or Wikipedia The Fabulous, Fabulist, you will come across a novel which is unrelated to the show. This book's author, Stephen Glass, was once a preeminent and well-respected journalist, and it was later revealed that he fabricated his sources for almost all of his pieces— And these were for big news outlets like Rolling Stone and NPR, which was very embarrassing and very upsetting. To be clear, this show has nothing to do with Stephen Glass. This show, The Fabulist, was hosted by reality queen and problematic Capricorn, Kristen Cavallari, and a woman named Orly Shani. Orly's Instagram seems nice enough were it not for the one photo of plain LaCroix. Like, plain? I'm just not touching that. I kind of wish that it were Stephen's glass, part of Stephen Glass's social fallout that he would have to cover such inane pop culture topics like those jewelry belly chains for your feet called barefoot sandals and whether sriracha is the Tom Ford of hot sauce as he would be the host of The Fabulist. But you know, God does not give with both hands. So my dreams about that, sorry Stephen, will have to remain just that, dreams. After a few weeks of filming, the first few of which were so hard on Morgan that she was sick for the remainder of the first season, the show was announced on E! on November of 2013. But I'm not going to use that date. Instead, I'm using the show's air date of January 19th, 2014 at 10pm. I'm using Beverly Hills as the birthplace. I mentioned retrogrades a little at the beginning of this episode, and 2014 really should have just been called Year of Retrogrades. You might know that every year there's at least two or three Mercury retrograde periods, but you'll need to be sitting down. Okay, are you sitting down? When I tell you that seven planets were in retrograde throughout the year, Venus, Mercury, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Pluto, and the asteroid Chiron. Yes, seven. It might have just been faster to tell you what planets weren't actually in retrograde. A retrograde planet is one that looks like it's moving backwards in the sky, and then also if it was moving backwards in the sky, it would be moving backward through the zodiac to the previous sign. But this backward motion is actually fake. The orbit pattern of the Earth and the fact that the Earth moves at a different rotational speed than other planets gives that planet that we think is in retrograde the illusion of that movement. 
And for chart interpretation, retrogrades are a time to revisit and reflect themes of the planet that is in retrograde. In our chart, our planets in retrograde that are planets that have the retrograde designation mean we're meant to experience these planets differently than someone who has the same planet direct or not retrograde in their chart. The only planets that do not have retrograde periods are the sun and moon. So lucky Leo and Cancers because their ruling planets don't go retrograde. But unlucky for them because, you know, we all talk mad shit about you on the group text. Ah, 2014. I was an astrology noob all those years ago, barely knewing my sign. I was a certified sun astrology freak seven days a week. I worked at a nonprofit for women, and all but two of my coworkers were women, and we rolled deep with the astro and other topics. Admittedly, in 2014, I think we were all a little less than woke back then. Maybe this, you know, Saturn moving into Aquarius has gotten us feeling a little bit different. Maybe it's because Saturn was in Capricorn for a couple of those years. It's pretty easy to feel a little more than woke with seven planets in Aquarius right now. In the birth chart, the show is an Aquarius at zero degrees of the sign, the moon at 14 degrees of Virgo, and the rising at zero degrees of Libra. So for the sun, because it's in the zero degrees of Aquarius, we've just left stable and hardworking Capricorn, and we just entered the sign of Aquarius. That community-minded Aquarius loves the latest and greatest technology and showing up for their friends. And this totally tracks. These kids are all the children of people who likely had to work hard to achieve the extreme wealth and privilege that they enjoy. That movement from them growing up with Capricorn values and moving into this new sign Aquarius is about the lesson of living their own life and embodying the Aquarian values. The latter of which doesn't really happen on the show. I'm a Libra rising and a Virgo moon, so I'm going to try not to be biased, but I think that Libra risings definitely insinuates that the show members have good style or style is something they're very aware of. They like clothing. They like aesthetics. They're very concerned with how people think that they look. Libra Risings also really like to be liked. They like to be social. Most of the show involves a lot of lighthearted Libra activities like shopping for clothing or attending parties. And finally, that Virgo moon, which usually makes a chart more responsible and industrious. But also it can make you really critical and argumentative. I'm never, but you know, it could. The latter of which we see frequently in the show, as there are petty fights between cast members that easily escalate with sharp, biting remarks. Morgan, girl, you know I'm talking to you with your Gemini sun and Virgo rising self. You salty. The chart has both benefic planets Venus and Jupiter in retrograde in the chart, with Venus in 16 degrees of Capricorn and Jupiter in 13 degrees of Capricorn. Now, I know that I have maybe been accused of being not the nicest when it comes to the sign of Capricorn. And I actually really like Capricorns. But the planet of values and money and looks and love, Venus, and the planet of expansion and growth and luck, both ending up in the cardinal sign of cardinal earth sign of the zodiac, is worth mentioning. It doesn't mean that if you yourself have your Venus or your Jupiter in Capricorn, that you're just about status and you don't care about people or anything. But I would say that people who have Venus and Capricorn likely do prioritize financial security. Maybe they think they want to be financially secure because that independence is important to them. And people with Jupiter and Capricorn might prize ambition and gradual success. They want to work hard for what they have, you know, so they really earned it. But both of these planets are retrograde. So when I think about it, it's like 
if you had a normal morning commute to work or school, right, you get ready, okay, you're in the bus or the car, you're listening to a podcast, maybe you're checking emails, sipping coffee or tea, but a planet that's retrograde is you having that morning routine, but in this case, you have to change your route because there's road construction or you missed your normal bus or it came really early and you weren't there and then you had to take another through a different part of town. Or maybe you spilled your delicious caffeinated beverage and you had to pretend to be a functional adult until you could get more. You're still you, you're still trying to get to the same place, but your routine is just like a little off. It's a little out of whack. It feels really different. Things don't work the way they normally do when a planet is retrograde. Retrograde planets in our chart often behave differently than their direct planet counterparts. In this birth chart, uh, these usually helpful planets, Venus and Jupiter, the benefics, are retrograde, meaning they aren't working as well as they normally would. I almost think it's saying these 20-somethings don't really have their own ambitions and security and wealth, and hopefully they are trying to figure that out. These retrograde placements, again, speak to that familial wealth that they have access to but haven't really worked for. And a general note, this chart as a whole is very cardinal heavy. It has six planets and placements in the cardinal signs of Aries, Cancer, Libra, and Capricorn. If you use a 10-degree orb, which is, let's say, about as above board as the Bachelor calling Instagram influencers, quote, digital marketing consultants, there's technically a grand cross in this chart, and that's between Uranus in 9 degrees of Aries, Jupiter in 13 degrees of Cancer, Venus in 16 degrees of Capricorn, and Mars in 19 degrees of Libra. Cardinal Grand Crosses are the story of people who want to be in charge and get everything done, and this energy, wanting to get everything done, can result in them getting nothing done. They're spread too thin. We've all been there. The trick is that you need to harness that cardinal energy to start those projects and then rely on your mutable or fixed placements or find other people who really embody those traits of mutable and fixed to help you finish and edit those projects. So the first season premieres in that magic mid-January wasteland after the holidays where all we want to do is pretend to work and look at sunny Los Angeles weather. Considering such ridiculous one-liners like Dorothy hyping up a blood drive by saying, my blood would probably be glittery, almost like the Capri Sun commercial, or Alex Mack when she melts down, but like in a pink color. I said earlier I'm grouping the two seasons together, and that's because the first season ended on March 23rd, 2014, and the second season aired on August 3rd, 2014, and ended on September 28th, 2014. I get that it's not technically correct to lump them together, but as Morgan said, I'm not Anne Sawyer. I mean, Diane Sawyer. This isn't some hard-hitting journalism podcast. ProPublica would fall out of their chair, choking back tears, laughing, if I so much as applied to be an intern. And in COVID times, there's no coffee to fetch, so I'd really be out of luck. The entire time seasons one and two air on E were hit with retrograde after retrograde planet, and they're all hitting this chart. It's almost as unsettling as when Saatchi spilled sangria on Dorothy's marigold yellow velvet Chanel boy bag and Charlotte Olympia shoes. I mean, she kind of freaked out initially. Are you sitting down? Okay. Now? How about now? Are you, like, at least leaning on something so I can tell you this? In the time between January and March, then, when season one airs, we have Venus, Mercury, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter retrograde. The second season, we have Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, and Chiron retrograde. Now, I've just hit you with a ton of information, and honestly, it's 
practically impossible to parse through every planet and determine exactly how it impacts the chart when all of these planets are retrograde simultaneously. It just gets too busy, if that makes sense, right? There's almost too much data to go through. Season one deals with themes of finding your own home and getting real jobs, and of course, some bougie vacations. The first episode has some big Mercury retrograde energy as Morgan and Dorothy have a huge misunderstanding. Venus rules our stuff and our romantic lives, and it's also in retrograde as Dorothy and Roxy find dealing with new homes, landing an interior design contract, while Morgan and Brandon can't see eye to eye on who should be invited to their anniversary vacation, which feels very Jupiter because, you know, it's the planet of travel and luck. That is also in retrograde as well. We see Morgan dealing with some Venus retrograde self-consciousness about her brand and her blogging abilities and kind of her general personal persona. Season two takes place during the retrogrades of all of those outer planets. So that Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, Chiron dreams are ruled by Neptune and unexpected consequences or actions are very Uranus. And that's kind of what comes forth on this season. Cast members visit Dorothy's home in China where she grew up. And this kind of is a retrograde theme of like family dreams and traditions. EJ and Morgan both have professional dreams that they've hoped for with Morgan getting internet coverage and EJ being the Grand Marshal at San Francisco's Pride. But Morgan's uh, success comes with this kind of Uranus tinge because she's only getting coverage on the internet because of an unexpected racy photo that appeared on her blog. Morgan and Brandon have to consider if they want to keep dating and if they want to be parents. The Pluto retrograde deals with themes of power and control and it seems to coincide with the Uranus retrograde because the whole season has this weird kind of mysterious off vibe about Dorothy's pseudo secret relationship with this guy named Cooper. Is it secret because he doesn't want to be on TV? She doesn't want the relationship to be public and ultimately they call it quits. I don't know if this is just something where they were casually dating and then appearing on the show but it was very odd seeming and kind of stilted and I don't know Um, It's never been revealed, like, what is that Uranus twist? What is the unexpected component of their relationship that made it so damn weird to watch? Season three begins on May 24th, 2015, during a, you guessed it, a retrograde. A Mercury retrograde, which, real talk, after the seven planets from 2014, feels like a walk in the park. Like, the ease you might feel if you two had the immense levels of privilege and lack of awareness that prompt you to say something like, I've never opened a bottle of wine before. Why do we need to know how to open our wine when there's always a sommelier? But this time of miscommunication and delays that Mercury Retrograde really represents does find its way into an episode about text mishaps, travel issues, lots and lots of gossip about the new cast members. But don't get too comfy in your little Mercury retrograde sweatpants because June 12th, the day after Mercury goes direct, so it stops being retrograde. Uh, yeah, interestingly enough, Netru- Neptune decides to retrograde and then Saturn will join in retrograde two days later. Neptune, as I mentioned, is the planet of dreams and Saturn the planet of structures and hard work. And these, you know, kind of find their way into the episodes that air in June and July. Saturn talks to us about structures and sometimes there are societal structures like you know the government or it could be marriage relationships friendships the latter of which are all tested with Brandon and Morgan getting engaged and other members of the group you know begin gossiping and kind of testing their own personal relationships can hookups get serious can friendships be rekindled 
And the truth in this episode is not really. This also ties into the Neptune retrograde, which is about figuring out what's real and what's fake. You know, like how Morgan's 4.25 carat oval engagement ring is totally real, but Bobby isn't, and he has no business being at the engagement party he was uninvited to. Ugh! The fourth and final season of Rich Kids of Beverly Hills aired on May 1st, 2016, while Mercury and Jupiter are both retrograde. Clear communication and personal growth and reflection are gone faster than Dorothy skipping out on bridal duties to party with Bianca in New York. Mars and Neptune in retrograde, or Mars and Neptune move retrograde, and they do that pretty soon after. And this follows with themes of unproductive conflicts and efforts to get things done, like planning a wedding, falling flat, or experiencing delays. Mars is a planet of war and sex and action, and when retrograde, old wounds can surface and dysfunctional dynamics can be reignited. Morgan and Brandon are fighting, so are Morgan and Dorothy and Bianca and Morgan. I mean, season four was very chaotic, and I have to be honest, the highlight seems to be that at least EJ got his nail polish shade, jaded, off the ground and celebrated a launch party. I mean, thank God for that. I've talked about Neptune retrograde a lot this episode, and I think the thesis on this reoccurring transit in the show's history is this. Neptune is about illusion and dreams. It's about what's not real and what's not tangible. And I think it keeps showing up because there's a real lesson here. At its absolute best aspect, Neptune is creativity and the dreams that we hold uh, in ourselves. And there's an optimism to me about Neptune. But this constant Neptune retrograde placement reminds us that ultimately this is a show about how people are living a dream not the dream, right? It's not that they're wealthy and can travel and go to expensive restaurants and wear fancy clothes and live in ridiculous houses that they drove to in their fancy cars. No, these people are in their mid-twenties and they afford this lavish lifestyle because their parents are willing to fund this for them. They can party every night because they have no nine-to-five waiting for them in the morning. They wear impractical, outrageous clothing because they have no practical concerns like having to wait for a bus in the rain, or having to wear shoes they can stand in all day. At this time, right, 2014 to 2016, this peek into the lives of the wealthy offered some late 2000s escapism. But now, and maybe at the time, it rang hollow. There's no depth or introspection here, no comment on what real wealth is, or what does wealth give us and also not give us. There's no depth or introspection or consideration. It's just shiny and spendy and sunny. The show ultimately will go on to be canceled for low ratings following the fourth season. And there were harsh reviews from a number of outlets. I'm going to include something that Tracy Egan Morrissey of Jezebel wrote saying, none of the people seem to recognize that their words have any meaning, probably because they typically don't. Ouch, Tracy, too real. After all of my research and YouTube wormholes, I think the biggest indicator that time has passed since Rich Kids of Beverly Hills originally aired in 2014 was the cropped top adjacent wedding moment. Now, this is Morgan's wedding, which comes at the end of 2014. It was decidedly this dress more chic to me, sorry, than Sheena Shea's wedding crop top dress that was uh, a couple years before in 2014. I'm sorry, Sheena, but I think 
like you ditch the dress and you ditch the guy. So like maybe it's just bridge into the water, right? It's all good. Maybe in the year since 2016, we've learned that crop top wedding dresses are infinitely more difficult to pull off. And maybe that they're cursed because I don't have any knowledge of anyone who's worn one and stayed married. And also, sorry, Morgan, but then again, you ditched the crop top wedding dress and you got the guy, re- got remarried in Chanel and are now living in a $10 million home that your in-laws bought you. So maybe for you, it's like really, really, really all good. Then again, I did stop watching TLC recently, so I likely missed some lesser cable celebrity. Perhaps the 90-day universe is probably proving me wrong with a crop top wedding dress and a quote-unquote happy marriage. I think we can all agree that the only person I want to see in a crop top wedding dress is Jennifer Lopez. It's the same level of shameless show-offery like referencing your own song during the presidential inauguration that really only J-Lo can pull off. There's really only one question left to discuss, and about the rich kids of Beverly Hills, and that is what is Morgan going to name her baby girl that's due this month? How full circle is it that her first real job, her foray into adulthood, was in Aquarius season? That's when the show aired, and now seven years later, she is giving birth to an Aquarius of her very own. I don't actually have a prediction, but I do have footage from Rich Kids where Morgan tells us her favorite baby girl name. So listen in at the end of this episode. Whether you're a Dorothy or a Morgan, or you're just planning on re-watching the show over the weekend, please remember that everyone and everything has a birth chart, but yours is a chart of fortune. To wrap it up, I have a special Valentine's Day-themed episode that will be available on Sunday the 14th. Now, I know what you're thinking, and if you're like, Valentine's Day is not my jam, please consider listening to this episode because it is not lovey-dovey. It is saltier than the Dead Sea. All I'm going to say is that I'm coming for a particular Valentine's Day candy, and I am not pulling any punches. They know what they're on notice, and now you know to expect some sassy, sugary astrology in your podcast app. Don't we love a salty-sweet combination? Thank you for listening to Chart of Fortune. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or if you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email me or message me on Instagram. That contact information can be found in the show notes. If you like Chart of Fortune, please subscribe and consider leaving a five-star rating and review. If you leave me a five-star review, I will send you your very own glow-in-the-dark Chart of Fortune sticker. Chart of Fortune is written, produced, hosted, and edited by me, Elise Blaylock. Thank you for listening, and until next week, bye!